0: And welcome to the Revenants and Remains series of podcasts. This series is devoted to exploring the cult of architectural ruin in Britain, from the dissolution of the monasteries in the early 16th century, through the rage for ruin sentiment in the 17th and 18th centuries, and into the rise of modern notions of heritage and architectural conservation. Some of the topics to be covered include the making of Britain's ruins, how they came to be, or the early antiquarian fascination with ruins, literature and the aesthetic of ruin, the early tourist interest and experience in Britain's ruins, the poetry of the ruined abbey, the haunting of Britain's ruins, and the rise of conservation consciousness. This series is one of the outputs of a project entitled Exploring Britain's Ruins, Revenants and Remains at Five Northern English Religious Houses, which is a programme of public engagement that is run by me, Dale Townsend, at Manchester Metropolitan University, and by Michael Carter and Dominique Bouchard, both of English heritage. It's a programme that has been generously funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council, this series of podcasts disseminates some of the research that was originally produced during an earlier AHRC-funded research project entitled Writing Britain's Ruins, 1700-1850, The Architectural Imagination. Some of the research was published in the volume entitled, quite simply that, Writing Britain's Ruins, a collection of essays that was edited by Michael Carter, by me, Dale Townsend, and by Peter Linfield, and which was published by British Library Publishing in 2017. We are extremely grateful to the British Library for permission to reuse some of that material here. For more information on our project, please see our website at Revenants and Remains. or follow us on Twitter at rev underscore and underscore rem, or on Instagram at Revenants and Remains. In today's episode. Dr. Michael Carter, who is Senior Properties Historian at English Heritage, will talk to us about the haunting of Britain's ruins, an introduction to this series of podcasts at large. Let's hear it from Michael.
1: The dramatic ruins of Whitby Abbey, located high on a headland above the North Yorkshire coast, are justifiably among some of the most famous and arguably most beautiful monastic remains anywhere in England. The ruins you can see today largely date between the 13th and the 15th century. But the history of the monastic settlement at the site goes back much earlier, to the 650s in fact, and that's to the monastery that was first ruled by the formidable St Hild. Her abbey was a location in 664 for the famous Synod of Whitby. It was at this synod that disputed aspects of church custom were finally agreed, including how to calculate the date of Easter, and the method agreed then is still used to this day. The abbey was also home to Cademan, the father of English verse. Unfortunately, this Anglo-Saxon monastery didn't survive the Viking raids and attacks of the 9th century. A monastic settlement only permanently returned to the site in the aftermath of the Norman Conquest. The abbey established by the monks was to become one of the richest in medieval Yorkshire, and the shell of their church, built in the Gothic style, and I mean that in a medieval architectural sense, is amongst one of the most important monastic buildings in medieval Yorkshire. But it's a much later episode in the site's history that has arguably really fixed Whitby Abbey in the popular imagination. And that's the role its ruins play in an early, crucial chapter of Bram Stoker's Dracula, the vampire novel par excellence. The Abbey is introduced at the beginning of chapter 6 in the journal of Mina Murray. She's the novel's heroine and I'll quote what she says. Right over the town is the ruin of Whitby Abbey, which was sacked by the Danes and which is the scene for part of Marmion, where the girl was built up in the wall. It is the most noble ruin of immense size, full of beautiful and romantic bits. There is a legend that a white lady is seen in one of its windows. And between it and the town, there is another church, the parish one, around which is a big graveyard all full of tombstones. This is, to my mind, the nicest spot in Whitby. Mina's evocation of the East Cliffs as the nicest spot in Whitby would soon seem bitterly ironic, for it was in the churchyard the abbey ruins in the background that her close friend Lucy was attacked for the first time by the blood-sucking Transylvanian Count. But the image of the headland conjured by Mina also sets up, I think, the evil which would shortly unfold there. Sacked by the Danes, it's, well, established as a place of bloodshed and violence. The immurement of the girl in Walter Scott's poem Marmion says that this is a place of horror, And the white lady at the window leaves the reader in no doubt that the site has supernatural associations indeed by the time of the publication of dracula in 1897 there was already a centuries old tradition establishing monasteries with the gothic and the ghastly monastic remains in northern england rapidly established a place in this emerging literary genre in 1794, for instance, the Gothic romancer Anne Radcliffe visited Furness Abbey, then Lancashire, now Cumbria. In her mind's eye, Radcliffe visualised an ethereal procession of white-clad Cistercian monks on their way to sing the Midnight Office of Matins. And today there can hardly be a ruined abbey or priory anywhere in England, that lacks the reported sighting of a spectral grey lady or fleeted glances of sinister hooded monks and nuns. But this association with monasteries, the religious and the supernatural goes right back to the Middle Ages and some intriguing and at times genuinely creepy evidence is provided by monasteries in Northern England, many of which are now looked after by English Heritage between the 7th century and the eve of the dissolution of the monasteries in the 16th, monastic authors in the northern counties documented numerous stories of uncanny ghostly occurrences. Now these stories provided so much more than a pleasing terror to the monks and nuns. And as a historian of medieval monasticism, I turned to them as historical documents in their own right and sources to illuminate beliefs about death and the hereafter, the strategies available to people in the Middle Ages to secure their spiritual salvation, and also as a source for the interaction between elite and popular religion. Moreover, even though vampires as we now understand them are very much the creation of the 18th century, many of the stories I'll be discussing presently include elements that will be familiar to anyone with even a passing familiarity with vampire literature so anyway let's go back to the beginning shall we and belief in ghosts in one form or another can be found in most if not all world civilizations they occur in europe from the dawn of its recorded history and that's the greek bronze age The spirits of the dead regularly occur in Homer's epic poem, The Iliad, composed 1,200 years or so before the birth of Christ. Belief in ghosts persisted, indeed blossomed in classical Greece and Rome, and elaborate funerary rites were employed to appease the spirits of the dead, to prevent them from coming back to haunt and pester the living. Early Christian authors initially took a very dim view of such pagan beliefs. The dead, by their very nature, are not able to involve themselves in the affairs of the living, wrote St Augustine, 4th century theologian, whose works were widely read throughout the Middle Ages. No, Christ's death on the cross and resurrection on the third day provided for humankind the opportunity of redemption, providing eternal life and bliss in heaven. Death, ghosts were vanquished. Well, despite this, there are occasional inklings that the returning dead were thought to be part of God's plan for humankind, and that ghosts were capable of a thoroughly Christian interpretation. This was certainly the case by the 5th century, when the Roman provinces of Western Europe were overrun by the Germanic peoples, who had established the kingdoms um, that are the foundation of modern Europe to this day, and these peoples were, of course, pagan to begin with. At the end of the 6th century, monks set about the conversion of the Anglo-Saxon tribes that had settled in what is now England. These monastic missionaries arrived in the northern kingdom of Northumbria 50 or so years later. A main source for the conversion of the English is Bede, a monk at the monastery of St Peter, monk Wearmouth Jarrow, and he died in the year 735. Bede's ecclesiastical history of the English people is replete with accounts of miraculous holy visions, For the most part, these are of saints, the holy dead, and the accounts he gives can be placed in a by then already well-established hagiographical or saint tradition. But he also includes two instances that are recognisable as supernatural or ghost stories, and these involve the spirits of recent deceased individuals appearing in one instance to a nun and another to a monk. But these spectres aren't in the least bit sinister and they have explicitly pious or holy intentions and I think you'd have to have an extremely nervous disposition to be in the least bit spooked by them. Ghost stories composed by monastic authors start to proliferate from around about the year 1000. Now there are a couple of reasons for this I think. These include the advent of the millennium near the year 1000, the expected second coming of Christ, when, at the last judgment and the sound of the trumpet, the dead would rise from their graves and come to judgment. The multiplication of stories around this time can also be plausibly explained by the emergence of the concept of purgatory. According to this, the souls of the, department, of the departed rather, were destined for one of three locations. Those of people who lived a very holy life without the blemish of sin on their souls would go straight to heaven. The souls of the wicked and those who died with the stain of unconfessed mortal, that's very serious, sins on their souls would be consigned to everlasting damnation in hell. Now the third state was purgatory, where souls would be purged of lesser sin. Now, purgatory is still part of a Roman Catholic doctrine to this day. And it involved, certainly to the medieval mind, punishments every bit as horrible as those inflicted on the souls of the damned in hell. But crucially, purgatory is a temporary state, and there's only one way out, and that's upwards to heaven. Nobles, aware that their sins... Every bit as heinous as anything you've seen depicted in Game of Thrones, founded monasteries whose communities would, in a never-ending round of daily services, pray for the salvation of the soul of their benefactors, it was hoped until the end of time. The amount of time a soul spent in purgatory could be shortened by the actions of the living on behalf of the deceased either by doing good works such as distributing charity or the saying of prayers or the commission of the singing of masses. So many of the ghost stories set down monastic scribes were underpinned by these beliefs and the role of monks and nuns in securing through their prayers salvation in heaven and at a shortened time in purgatory. Now monastic ghost stories are somewhat formulaic, The ghost appears to a living person who expresses surprise and fear and they invoke Christ or the saints as a protection against the apparition. But it's important to note that the spectre cannot cause either spiritual or physical harm. It's ethereal and doesn't have bodily or corporeal form. The spectre goes on to explain why it's returned from the dead from purgatory and what spiritual services it needs be they prayers or masses. Motivated by a spirit of Christian charity, the living person, after at great expense and effort, fulfills the task. The soul is absolved, the ghost often returns one final time to say thank you for it's been released from its purgatorial pain and is now at peace in heaven. So they really do reaffirm the purpose of monasteries as places of pious prayer. And several stories written by a monk of Byland Abbey in Yorkshire in around the year 400 make these very points quite explicitly. I'll discuss them in more detail later. But we also encounter in monastic ghost story writing a second, much more malevolent kind of supernatural being. These are the undead. They have bodily form. They rise from their graves to cause nuisance, even harm. The modern word used to describe these supernatural beings is revenants, but in the Middle Ages they were labelled as demons or, my favourite, satellites of Satan. Revenants have their origins ultimately in the malign corporeal ghosts of pre-Christian, Germanic and Scandinavian lands, Now, northern England was, of course, invaded and settled by these very people, and memory of and belief in these supernatural beings lingered, as we shall see, until the very end of the Middle Ages in these parts. These revenants were difficult to reconcile with Christian beliefs about the hereafter, especially as they neither sought nor could be appeased by pious prayer. Instead, the rituals of the church were called upon to provide protection against these restless dead, and extraordinary measures were needed to prevent them rising from their graves and causing harm. Some of the best examples can be found in the pages of the History of English Affairs, written at the end of the 12th century by William. He was a canon of Newburgh Priory in what's now North Yorkshire. Now, William's writings are an incredibly important source for medieval historians, but its text includes numerous digressions, many of which describe supernatural occurrences. And William really did believe he was setting down an account of real events. It would not be easy, he writes, to believe that the corpses of the dead should sally from their graves and should wander about to the terror or destruction of the living and again return to the tomb which of their own accord spontaneously opened to the receive them did not frequent examples occurring in our own times suffice to establish this fact to the truth of which there is abundant testimony one of his stories is set in the town of berwick that's on the border between england and scotland it concerns what william describes as a great rogue who after his death sallied forth from his grave at night due to it was believed the connivance of satan he terrorized the townfolk, townsfolk before returning to his earthly sepulchre at dawn the authorities decided to exhume his horrible carcass which they chopped limb from limb and threw onto a fire. Although the commotion caused by the restless corpse ceased, the incident was soon followed by a dreadful pestilence or outbreak of plague that carried off many of the town's inhabitants. Another of the tales, likewise set in northern parts involved once again a man of evil life whose restless corpse rose from its grave to cause terror among the living. When dug up, it was discovered to be closer to the surface than expected. The body of that foul creature was swollen to an enormous corpulence, with its countenance beyond measure turgid and suffused with blood, while the shroud in which it was wrapped appeared nearly torn to pieces. The heart was ripped from the revenant, its body dismembered and consigned to the flames. Tangible evidence for belief in revenants, for the burning and dismemberment of the supposed restless dead comes from the deserted medieval village of Warren Percy in the Yorkshire Wolds, that's 25 miles or so away from Newburgh excavation of the site in the 1960s and covered a pit containing a mass of disarticulated human bones. Now significantly these hadn't been buried in the churchyard. Recent analysis showed that these remains came from a minimum of 10 individuals including a child as young as two to four years old. All the people were born locally and lived between the years 1,000 and about 12 to 1,300. Now that's the peak era of revenant literature and belief. Discoloration showed that the bones had been burnt. Moreover, there were post cut marks showing that the bodies had been decapitated and dismembered. These marks also revealed that in some instances, the heart had been removed. The pattern of post-mortem damage wasn't consistent with butchering for cannibalism. No, archeologists instead believed that we're probably dealing with the dismembered remains of supposed revenants whose decapitated and burnt bodies were buried in unconsecrated ground on the edge of the village. Now excavations elsewhere in England and indeed Europe have found medieval burials where a stake has been used to pin a corpse in its grave or they've been secured there by the placement of heavy weights such as chains on the body. latter instance got me thinking about some possible monastic revenants. A source from the 13th century records the Alexander Langley Prior of Windham in Norfolk went mad from overstudy. He was therefore sent to Binham Priory in the same county to live out his days. The monks there found his insane outbursts intolerable. The unfortunate Langley was flogged and kept in solitary confinement, and after his death was buried wrapped in chains. Was this, I wonder, to keep his unquiet body from wandering? Returning to the north, a history of the Abbots of Fountains, written in the middle of the 15th century, records that in 1390, William Gower was interred in the middle of the Chapel of the Nine Altars. That's a great Eastern extension to the monastery's church. The opening of Gower's grave in the 19th century found that his skull had been removed and placed between his legs, That's a typical post-mortem treatment for unquiet corpses. Well, stories of undead priests and monks abound in monastic chronicles. These include William of Newburgh's tale of a chaplain who led such a worldly life, including a love of hunting, that he became known in life as the Hound Priest. He was buried in the cemetery of Melrose Abbey, that's near the Scottish borders, but soon rose from his grave to torment the monks there. Well, we've no explicit evidence from monastic chronicles that either Langley or Gower were counted amongst the restless dead, but the treatment of their remains means that possibility is worth considering. Shortly after the death of Abbot Gower, an anonymous monk of Byland Abbey recorded 12 local ghost stories. I'm going to consider these fascinating and at times genuinely creepy stories in more detail as they bring together and further tease out many of the themes I've talked about so far. They can be found in a manuscript from the Abbey's Library that's now in the collections of the British Library in London. And appropriately, it was Montague Rhodes or M.R. James who first brought the stories to widespread attention in an article published in the uh, English Historical Review in 1922. James was one of the great medievalists of his age and his many publications, including those on illuminated manuscripts and stained glass, remain indispensable sources for scholars to this day. But James is best known for his ghost stories, many of which have medieval and indeed monastic themes. The Byland stories were written in Latin, which James described as refreshing, and I think that means that he thought it was pretty bad. And they're written in a pretty crabby hand, which even an expert in medieval handwriting or paleography, as talented as James, found challenging. All but two of the stories are set in the fields, lanes, villages and towns close to the monastery. One, as we'll see, even take place within the confines of the abbey itself. For the most part, the stories stand in the long tradition of monastic ghost story writing, and affirm the efficacy of prayer and good works for the relief of the sufferings of soul in purgatory. The first story concerns, as a good example. It concerns a servant of nearby Rivo Abbey. His horse, which is carrying a pannier of beans, falls and breaks its leg. The man shoulders the beans and sets on his way only to be confronted by a spectre, which takes the form of a rearing horse and then a burning bale of hay. Terrified, the man invokes the protection of Christ and a ghost then appears in human form, Given its name and the reason for its distress and the haunting, well, the man, motivated by compassion, arranges for masses to be said so that the ghost's soul can be absolved and attain eternal rest. In other tales, the ghost needs help to right a wrong before it can find peace. The sixth story involves a canon of nearby Newburgh Priory, who died excommunicated after stealing six spoons from his monastery. In order that his spirit can be absolved of the sin, it directed the man to whom it was haunting um, to the location of the purloined spoons, asking that they might be restored to the prior of the monastery. This was duly accomplished, and the restless spirit is absolved, finds its rest, and confirms its salvation by appearing one final time, but this time wearing a monastic habit, which is once more worthy to be shown in, because the sins have been forgiven. The ghosts in the Byland story were clearly considered frightening by their protagonists, scaring man and beast alike. The star of the story eight is one William of Bradford. He was followed for three nights by a ghost crying, who, 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 how ghostly is that? On the fourth night, William heard the cry of a terrible voice which gradually got closer and closer. He was then confronted by a pale horse. William's terrified dog cowered and hid behind his legs. William's fear and that of his hound might seem understandable but he and the story's other protagonists had little to fear from these ghostly apparitions especially as they could quite literally call on the name of Christ and the saints to provide protection. Typically this invokes the holy name of Jesus a very popular devotion indeed at this time and one enthusiastically promoted by the austere cistercians. Likewise the protective power of the wounds of Christ his pierced hands feet and heart that's a devotion allied to the holy name by the way was called upon in several of the stories. Merely speaking these holy words generally did the trick forcing the ghost to appear and to make its request for pious services. However In one of the stories, the apparition is so frightening, and is also accompanied by devils, that its human star, a tailor from nearby Ampleforth with the surname Snowball, has to seek extra spiritual protection. He assembles a formidable spiritual armour, including a book with the gospels, amulets with sacred texts written upon them, and four reliquaries, their boxes containing bones, clothing of saints. The story describes how Snowball uses a crucifix to draw a circle. Standing in its centre, he holds the Gospels and is protected from the forces of evil by the placement of the four reliquaries around its edge in the shape of a cross. The ghost, which initially appears in the shape of a goat, is conjured to take human form, an event that ultimately leads to the soul receiving forgiveness and repose. I have mentioned on more than one occasion that the stories stand in a well-established tradition of didactic, pious, monkish ghost storytelling, but they also contain some novel elements. Many of the ghosts, even though they want pious services, take on a solid bodily form, Even in the shape of an animal, several have shape-shifting properties. They can be pesky in one story knocking the human protagonist over a wall. And in several instances, the living are left gravely ill for several days after completing the spiritual services demanded by the ghost. Some scholars think what we're looking at here is a mouthing of beliefs regarding ethereal spirits with benign, pious purposes, with traditions about the undead with malign intent. And one of the undead, a revenant, does indeed occur in one of the Byland stories. It concerns one James Tankerley, who had been parish priest at the Yorkshire village of Cold Kirby. The story tells how he's buried at the Abbey before the entrance to the chapter house in the Abbey's cloister. Now, this was a very prestigious location in which to be buried, and it was normally reserved for important benefactors, even abbots. Tankley clearly did not deserve to be buried in such a privileged location. His body rose at night from its sepulchre and travelled the 20 miles to Cold Kirby where it gouged out the eye of its former concubine. The abbot and monks were terrified and took drastic action. This wasn't an occasion when pious prayer would suffice. Tankley's body and coffin were exhumed and thrown into a nearby lake called the Gormire. This was a watery hell where it would languish for all eternity. I'd like to briefly mention one more Byland story before moving on. The 11th tale concerns when Richard Rowntree, who leaves his pregnant wife to make the pilgrimage to the shrine of St James at Compostela in northern Spain, en route while keeping night watch, he sees a procession of ghosts riding beasts. Now these beasts were the gifts given at the time of their burial to the church, so called mortuary beasts. Shuffling along behind this procession was a baby wrapped in a sock. The infant identified itself as Richard's son, miscarried or possibly aborted and buried without being named or baptised. Now, without the sacrament of baptism, the child still had the stain of original sin on its soul and therefore couldn't, according to official church doctrine, enter the kingdom of heaven. However, Richard performs a sort of posthumous baptism, also naming the child, therefore allowing it to stand upright and find salvation. The inclusion of this story in the Byland collection is really intriguing and implies to me of a official ecclesiastical sanction of the widespread practice of the laity performing emergency baptism of stillborn or dangerously ill babies. This talk has largely focused on the didactic purposes of ghost stories, their place in medieval monastic belief and observance, or the stories of revenants showing the church's power against evil. But I also think that then, as now, people marvelled at, even enjoyed, a fantastical or spine chilling tale. We've got some evidence of this from English heritage sites in northern counties. Matthew Paris, 13th-century monk at St Albans Abbey, records in his chronicle a ghostly occurrence at Roach Abbey near Doncaster. In late May 1236, he tells us, bands of well-armed knights, riding valuable beasts with standards and shields, coats of mail and helmets emerged from the ground near Roach and took part in a tournament lasting three days to the wonder of all those who beheld it. The chivalric host then once again disappeared into the earth from whence it first emerged. Now, I don't there's any serious doubt that this story would have appealed to the knightly classes, an important and generous category of monastic benefactors. The tales of the demons that inhabit the pages of a 14th century chronicle once owned by Lanacost priory in Cumbria by contrast seem more suited to the campfire than to edifying lessons in the novices chamber or reading in the cloister even after an interval of almost 700 years the account of a demon child fatally wounding the young lady is genuinely disturbing the only moral that I can discern is that there's evil in the world and that you'd better watch out. Religious reformers in the 16th century believed that salvation was achieved through faith in Christ alone, and they rejected the value of good works and especially intercessory prayer for the dead. Ghosts, therefore, had no place in this new Protestant theology. The late Hilary Mantel's The Mirror and the Light, the last part of the Thomas Cromwell Gulf Hall trilogy, contains a description of its hero, like the good Protestant that he was, leafing with disdain through a book recently pillaged from a monastic library. Well, why is he so disdainful? It's because the book contains ghost stories. Cromwell's mocking, even despairing comments on the contents of the tales can leave little doubt that he had in his hands the very manuscript containing the Byland stories. Well, they were still making a literary impact 600 years after they were recorded by the anonymous Byland Monk. This kind of anti-Catholicism can be found in 18th and 19th century Gothic ghost stories and fiction, and it can also be found in scholarship. In his translation of the Lanacost Chronicle, Sir Hubert Maxwell expressed disgust for the superstitious stories that peppered its pages, and their use by the medieval church to keep the populace in ignorance. It's equally possible to detect a strong anti-Catholic stance in Several of M.R. James's own ghost stories, well, regardless of the hopes of reformers, beliefs in ghosts and the supernatural endured in Protestant England. The twice-yearly goth festivals at Whitby are witness to the thriving association between monastic ruins and the restless dead in 21st century post-Christian England. The Abbey takes centre stage in these celebrations, and I'm sure you can guess why. But I can't help but smile when I think about this. Whitby Abbey was a place of saints. And one of the saints whose relics who rested there was a 7th century nun called St Begu. Her feast falls on the 31st of October, which is of course, Halloween. So, the Goths that flocked to the Abbey on Halloween Tide are following in the footsteps of the medieval faithful who would have visited the Abbey to venerate this great Whitby saint on her feast. Begu's holiness was such that had he landed at Whitby in the Middle Ages, Dracula just wouldn't have stood a chance against her.
0: Thank you for listening to the Revenants and Remains podcast. In the next episode, Rosemary Sweet, who is Professor of Urban History at the University of Leicester, will present on the topic of antiquaries and ruins. Please like, subscribe and share this podcast with your networks. Thank you for listening. This podcast is directed by Dale Townsend and produced by Evan Wilson and Marcus Hittier. The sound art is by Gary Fisher.